Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. You'll also find the recent episodes in iTunes, and you can subscribe using an RSS reader. All that stuff is free. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy, actually. The more I come to think of it, the crazier it seems. But anyway, you can find it all at thejazzsession.com. And while you're there, why not become a member? Huh? Just do it. It's way past time for you to become a member. There's been, what is this now, 270 almost of these shows? Every single one of them for free. And it's time now for you to kick in. So please do go to thejazzsession.com and become a member. It's super cheap. Although you can make it as expensive as you want, but you can do it for super cheap and it will help keep the show going. In fact, it will allow the show to keep going. It won't just help. It is the thing that will allow the show to keep going. Recently, I had the pleasure... Oh, before I tell you that, geez, almost forgetting all the credits here. Thanks to the Respect Sextet. They are at respectsextet.com, or at least a... A digital representation of them is to be found there. They have a lot of great records, and you should buy them all and then go see them live whenever you can. They're pretty fantastic live. In fact, they've got a new live record on the way at some point in the not-too-distant future. I know that that is the case because it's already been recorded, so I assume it won't take all that long for it to uh, see the light of day, and you'll be happy when it does. RespectSextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo and who tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Now I can tell you that recently it was my pleasure to spend some time hanging out with TK Blue. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. I remember one of the first things anybody ever told me about recording was never turn off the microphone until the person is gone. And this is one of those cases, you know, where I went out to his house and, you know, he picked me up at a train station. We drove to his house did the interview, I put my stuff away, we got back in the car, and he drove me back to the train station. And as the interview's great. There's lots of good stuff in the interview, and I think you'll enjoy it. However, he told some incredibly funny stories about some of the very famous musicians he's played with over the years on the car ride back to the train station. And I so wish I had had the recorder going all of that time. But that only means that he'll have to come back on the show again and tell some more of those stories. But uh, the interview itself is great, and it's about his new album, which is a Latin look at the music of Charlie Parker, and we'll talk about why he decided to do an album like that right at the top of the interview. But first, here's a track from TK Blue's Latin Bird. guest is the composer and saxophonist T.K. Blue. He's got a new CD called Latin Bird, and it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, Jason. Good to be here with you, and uh, great to meet you. Thanks. Same here. Mm-hmm. Let, let me start with, uh, I guess, uh, maybe what's an obvious question, which is uh, why people still need to, to know about Charlie Parker and his music in uh, the year 2011, and why you chose him as your muse for mm-hmm. this record. Well, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, I think uh, the validity of his legacy is unquestionable, you know. 
um, his music, which more than 60, 70 years ago, is still fresh today. And the, the other thing is that um, I kind of got into jazz and into saxophone in the reverse order. You know, when I got into jazz and decided to play, I, I, the first person that I, I heard in high school was Farrell Sanders. And I really loved this song, Creator Has a Master Plan. I was playing flute clarinet at the time. And then uh, my first year in college, I heard Coltrane. So I'm going backwards. And then I, <laughs> then I got a soprano saxophone. I heard My Favorite Things uh, and uh, uh, Afro Blue. Uh, softly in the morning sunrise those great recordings he did with the soprano and subsequently I enrolled in Jazzmobile which was an incredible organization where you can study for free up in Harlem some of the teachers there Frank Foster Ernie Wilkins Jimmy Heath uh, Chris Wood um, uh, Jimmy Owens uh, Billy Taylor it was it's just phenomenal and you had a chance to study with all of them so when I studied with Jimmy Heath uh, I was playing flute my first uh, year with him was on flute, and then I was playing soprano. He said, well, man, you got to get an uh, alto or tenor because nobody's going to call you for a flute and soprano. They're going to call a tenor <laughs> alto player who doubles. Right. If you want to work in this business, you got to get a tenor alto. And he said, uh, I said, well, yeah, well, you know, I'm in the Coltrane. He said, yeah. He said, look, I, he said, I knew John Coltrane. He was, he was a good friend of mine. And Coltrane, no doubt, one of the masters, but you need to check out cats who came before him. I said, like, like who? And he said, like, like Bird. I said, Bird, who is he? He said, okay. He just shook his head. I was going to say, what did he do after he, he said, picked himself up? Yeah, he said, okay, all right, come to my house. So I go to his house in Queens, and he had a big picture on the wall. And uh, it was a photograph of a big band from the 40s in Philly, a gig that Jimmy was directing the band. It was his band. Charlie Parker was playing Jimmy's alto, taking a solo. And my idol, John Coltrane, was in the sax section looking at Bird in utter amazement with a cigarette in his hand. And mouth wide open like, what is this cat playing? So when I saw my idol looking at Bird like that, so this must be something to, to this cat. you know. And the story goes that the cigarette actually burned Coltrane's hand, finger because he was just so enthralled listening to Bird. So next Jimmy put on some music, uh, Show Enough, Red Cross, and I said, oh, man, this is, what is this? And he was showing me stuff with the rhythm changes and how Bird would, uh, had this harmonic uh, innovations, and he'd modulate and all this stuff he was doing. I was just, man, this, this is incredible. And fate would have it uh, that uh, I was living in the East Village, going to NYU, and was, I was living on 4th Street. There was a music store on 2nd Avenue and 2nd Street. And I, on my way home that same day, I walked by the music store, and there was an alto saxophone in the window for sale. And it was a gold-plated uh, pre-cigar cutter, Selma. Actually, it was a classic, $200. So, of course, I called my mom and said, Mom, help me. I got to get this horn. And so, that, so I got the saxophone. And, and, and the next thing that happened, I got a grant, a National Endowment grant, to study with Jimmy. For an additional year so that was what did it for me as far as learning uh, the canon of Charlie Parker and uh, I just fell in love with uh, with the whole uh, phrasing the, the 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 expression and I, and I saw the connection of knowing bird to get to all the other styles of music that was the other thing too I felt like from studying him and his music and solos and listening to recordings it gave me more facility to to go in every in different directions, you know, especially the stuff he did, and then the stuff he did in the in the with the Afro-Cuban musicians, you know, with Candido and Chano Pozo and all that stuff with Machito, Chico Farrell. So it really influenced me a, a great deal. And um, I, I've always been doing different things with Bird's music. And now we just spoke about Japan earlier. I remember doing a tour in Japan, and one of the guys uh, uh, that was helping with the tour had a concept of. Uh, he said to me, "Hey, maybe nice. We can do some Charlie Parker, but in a different way." And and it just hit me because we were doing these gigs, and this one um, Japanese group that that backed me, they were heavy into uh, the Second Line, New Orleans stuff. So we wound up doing some of Bird stuff with that Second Line rhythm. So I said, oh, that's pretty nice, man. It's a little different, you know. And then I thought, well, let's do some of the stuff with the Afro-Cuban stuff. But then I didn't want to do the typical things that he normally did in that style, like My Little Suede Shoes, La Estrella, Tico Tico, that stuff. So that's why I decided on this recording 
to do things that he recorded basically in swing and just to put the Afro-Cuban thing on top. interesting listening to this record um, and you've got a, a, several of my favorite Charlie Parker tunes on here including Visa and NCC mm-hmm. uh, tunes that have uh, Visa is a great example tunes that have some some rhythmic complexity the way they were originally recorded mm-hmm. but despite that fit quite well over a completely different rhythmic base. Exactly. It's pretty interesting it's very interesting and the, and the other challenge there was two challenges with this recording too um, one was that I, I wanted to really delve into the blues because, you know, the, the blues canon in Bird's repertoire was tremendous. The majority of the things that he recorded were in blues. And I said, well, that's really interesting to really delve into. But at the same time, I said, well, you know, I can't do a whole record and every tune is 12 bar and right. we're playing blues. So that's why I decided to do some arrangements to make it a little different each tune. And, uh, and a lot of the reviews and comments I've gotten about that has been great because it, the variety uh, of rhythmically and also of the structure. We like a tune like CC, which is a 12-bar blues, but we, we turn it into a 24-bar, you know. Chi-Chi, which is a 12-bar blues, but we do it on a Montuna vamp, you know. So we did things like that. Uh, Bluebird. Which, which I reharmonized and did things like that. I incorporated some of his solo. So that, it was challenging. And, that, and the other thing, too, was I, I didn't want to make long solos because I started thinking about m- most of the stuff that Bird did, especially recording. Now, now live stuff, he played longer, but most of his recordings, you hear this, he'd take one or two chorus. Right, he was bound by technology. That's right, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Good point. And, 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 and it was a great thing because what he said in one or two choruses. You know, and it reminded me of one of my teachers, uh, saxophone player Billy Mitchell, recounted to me when he went to hear Bird at uh, up up in Mittens, and he said, "Man, he was get going in the door, and they were playing Night in Tunisia, and Bird took the break, and the four bar break. He said he just stopped <laughs> and he held his head for about five. He couldn't go in the club. He said he had to wait there for about five minutes to absorb what he just heard because it was so foreign, and here a cat play with such technique and emotional content. It was just mind blowing." So I said, let me try to uh, make it more, uh, uh, not play as long and try to see what I need to say in the short span of time. So that sure. was another thing I had uh, thought about. Yeah, that, that idea of distilling ideas, uh, certainly right before Bird, was fairly common. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, for every 20,000 choruses by Paul Gonzalez, there are many more recordings where the guy gets you know, eight bars or whatever right. to make his point. Right. And even, I remember Branford Marsalis saying at the time that he was playing with Sting in the 80s mm-hmm. uh, that one of the things he had to adjust to was the fact that he had, like, a half a chorus or That's the right. bridge to take his entire solo. That's he didn't right. have time to work out his ideas. Right. And it sounds like you're kind of enforcing those same, finding more freedom by enforcing those same parameters Exactly, yourself. exactly. And, and I, think, I think, too, that um, at this junction that we are in now, I think, I mean, it could be debatable, and and maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe people will will not agree, and it's it's okay, but I just find in today's climate, the average person, I don't think that they're going to 
Do you really want to sit there and listen to a guy take a 20-minute solo? And not saying that there, there are many great players out there who can take a 20-minute solo and, and say tremendous amount of material and, and be incredible. And I mean, no doubt. And that's not to diminish that at all. But I, I, I just feel, for the most part, with technology, things are moving so quick. People's attention span. People like things they can disseminate quickly. You know, and sit there and listen to a guy take a 20-minute solo on one tune and the song lasts 45 minutes or an hour, it can be kind of tough, you know. So I'd rather have more variety in my statement. In an hour, I'd rather play six or seven songs than play one song. And I've seen it many times. I'm going to clubs to hear, hear people I love. And, man, one set might be two songs. One song, you just get caught up in the, in the, in the improv, you know. And it's, you know, it has its place. But I guess it's a path that you have to choose. And I know when I, I, I teach at university, and I know dealing with young students and young people when they listen to music, especially jazz for the first time, I think it gets their attention more when you have more variety. And when it's, um, and then also the other thing, you know, I have that West Indian heritage. My mother's from Trinidad. My father's from Jamaica. So things for me, I'm always groove orientated. I'm always feeling that. Uh, I, I, I appreciate avant-garde music and, and there are many artists I enjoy listening to. But for me, for my expression, I, I like a groove uh, happening, uh, whether what, whatever it is, whether it's swing or African groove or Brazilian groove. But it, 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 it just feels good for me. And, and I don't find that there's nothing wrong with tapping your foot. It, you know, uh, a lot of times I find in, in jazz, um, the so-called jazz police will uh n you know not not be that friendly towards music that has that groove orientation you know they're more into the stuff that's very esoteric or intellectual um you know without uh, a rhythmic pulse uh maybe more on the avant-garde tinge and and that's fine but i just want to i want to try to groove a little bit more yeah that's, that's, <laughs> uh, uh you got some great people helping you do that on this record will you talk about your band on this album oh yeah so we got uh well the way it came about we had a gig at dizzy's and um i decided you know light went off so let me you know be great to record you know it's always great when you have a week sure and to go and record right after you know everything is worked out so we had uh on drums willie martinez a good friend of mine we've been working actually we worked with another latin band that was led by Norman Hedman, who passed away, a percussionist who was from Jamaica. And uh, Willie plays timbales and drums. And, and then Roland Guerrero, percussionist from Honduras, uh, fantastic player. He's, he worked with Arturo Farrell, with uh, Nicholas Payton. Uh, so these guys know that genre, and I was really wanted to be specific to have that type of genre. Originally slated for the record was Benito Gonzalez, young pianist who's very hot on the scene. From he's from Venezuela, but we had our wires crossed, and he couldn't make it. So I got a young guy named Theo Hill take his place, and he did an admirable job on piano. Essiet Essiet, who's played with me many times, just on some of my other recordings, on bass. And what I love about Essiet, he, he, he played all those heads with me on that on the record, you know, and Donnelly, things like that, on the upright, <laughs> right, <laughs> which is pretty challenging. And then Lewis Nash, we had just finished working together at, at, with Randy at Dizzy, so he's on the recording uh, with Randy um, Storyteller. I'll just say out. that that's Randy Weston. Randy Weston, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he said to me, hey, man, if you're doing anything, count me in, you know. And I said, okay, Lewis. I called him. He said, he was actually working in New York at the Blue Note, but he said, look, I can make something in a day. So we said, well, look, come, let's, make, let's make it in a day, you know. <laughs> so he's on it. And Steve Teray is a good friend of mine. And I always love Steve's uh, musicianship. He's such a consummate professional. And uh, his shell work and the trombone is just admirable. Benny Powell was supposed to be on the date. It was Benny was my adopted father and uncle and best friend, really. He really was my best friend. And um, unfortunately, he died uh, right around the time I did the recording. We spoke. He went in the hospital, and uh, he had an operation. He came, and he, he, he was okay. We talked, and I said, okay, so next week I'll come over. We'll work on it. I left some space for you on the record. And, I, and my, I, my idea was to have him come in and overdub. But, you know, he passed, so so Steve actually came in after him. And there's a tune on here dedicated Yeah, to he flew away too soon, yeah. That's dedicated to Benny. It's interesting because one of the reviews of the record, they, it was a good review, but they, they the guy mentioned that I had wrote that for Bird, but in, action, in actuality I did write it for Benny, and uh, that was my a dedication to him. Uh. 
How did you meet Benny? I met Benny through Randy. Yeah, we we did a tribute to Randy uh, in ni- 1985. You know, it's a it's it's people realize how long Randy's band has been together. The, the, the last before Benny died, that quintet with Alex Blake on bass, Neil Clark on percussion, myself and Benny Powell, we've been together since 80, 80, 80, 86. I think Neil came on around 86. Yeah, that's a long time. Man. Yeah, you know, playing together. So that's how I met Benny, and, uh, and around that time I was doing a recording, my first record in Paris. I was living in Paris, and uh, I asked Benny, uh, you know, I was kind of coming back and forth, and I said, man, if I do some recording, would you help me? He said, no problem. So I did a couple of things uh, that he helped me on. He, re- he recorded with me, did some arrangements for me, and we, we just became very close, you know. And I've done a ton of stuff with him. His last record, he recorded five of my compositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Next Step was his last recording. I talked uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, the trombonist Chris Washburn, who uh, mentioned that when he first moved to New York, he had an apartment, and uh, one of the people he would see go by his window every day when he was practicing was Benny Powell. Wow. And he said wow. so it would just encourage wow. him to practice even yeah, more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No doubt, man. No doubt. I guess Benny lived right down the street, and he would Chris would have his window open, he'd be practicing, right. and he'd Benny see Benny Powell walk by, and yeah. he'd say, well, that's another hour. Yeah. And Benny, people realize the trombone Benny played was given to him by Tommy Dorsey. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Tommy Doyle. Wow. Engraved trombone, yeah. yeah. As a matter of right. fact, Steve Teray asked me about it the other day. He said, hey, man, what happened to Benny's trombone, man? <laughs> if, they, if they want to sell it, let me know. Because Steve, Steve played it. He said, it's beautiful, man. That's going to be like a bird saxophone, right? It just becomes a legend. The instrument becomes man, a legend. Man, I just saw on Downbeat uh, this month. Downbeat, they got an ad in here for somebody selling Coleman Hawkins saxophone for $125,000. <laughs> You mentioned when you were in Japan that you did uh, some bird over uh, second line and some, mm-hmm. some second line rears its head on this mm-hmm. uh, on this record too. Yeah, yeah, we, we did. I think Visa. Yeah, I love the second line. It's it's it's. It, I mean, it's that that New Orleans vibe, you know. And it's it, I, I find the South as you go further south, you get more closer to Africa in the spirit of the people and in the music. You know, so the second line, because when I was when I went to Africa in the '80s, uh, I was in Mozambique, and I heard music that reminded me of the second line music. And, and these are some musicians playing traditional instruments, but it had that type of rhythm, sure, and that feeling. You know, um, so yeah, I love uh, second line uh, and the whole tradition, uh, the funeral, the marching band tradition in New Orleans is, is is coming right out of the African tradition, call and response. And the whole way that you celebrate this, the, the 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 death, but you know, because um, the spirit is free now. So they they go on away to the cemetery, playing a dirge. But after you got the celebration, you know, and that was how his Benny's funeral was. We had a, the the second line stuff going on there. Yeah, Winton was there actually. That I saw Winton uh, a month or so late. He said, "Man, I wish I had my horn." Because I said, "Damn, you should have brought your horn." He, he wanted to play because that second line thing was killing. You know, they had it really, really, uh, really beautiful. I think Benny would have been so happy to hear that. You know, yeah. the send off. You know.
Did you uh, did you grow up with music from uh, Jamaica and Trinidad in your house? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We had all kind of stuff going on. We had the um, Mighty Sparrow, you know, and then we had also the Calypso stuff uh, from 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 Trinidad. And then uh, I grew up also listening to R and B. You know, I grew up really with the Motown thing and James James Brown and all of that stuff uh, on Motown, Marvin Gaye. Um, and then, you know, in high school, started listening to jazz, like I said, through Farrell Sanders. I think another uh, recording that really caught my ear was something by Gene Ammons. So um, I was listening to that. And, uh, yeah, and then when I got into college is when I really started um, focusing more on jazz, you know, and really the whole history of, of, of the music. When, you, uh, when you're talking to your students, does music like uh, the music of Charlie Parker, does it seem ancient? To them, I mean, it seems like in some ways that's it's, even it, their grandparents might not have been alive. Yeah, you know, yeah it does. It does, and 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 also when I play some of the recordings, it, it, it might seem a little ancient to them. But when I play his music, because I play a lot for my class, I do a jazz history course at uh, I'm, I, I'm at Long Island University CW Post campus, and uh, I play for myself. We, like we, so when we're doing uh, the '40s and we're doing bebop, you know, I say okay. So now we're gonna. Now you remember that blues we listened to? We did the swing period, C Jam Blues. Okay, now this is another blues on the same harmony, but listen to how it's a little different from the C. And now I'll play it. And they're like, wow, okay, that's different, yeah. But by find playing the form live, they connect with it better. And I can't tell you how many emails and letters I've got from students who say, man, Professor Blue, I didn't know, uh, I, I didn't think I would like jazz, but I like jazz. And, and I go hear it now and I go to clubs now and I buy music now because of making it accessible. Uh, and, I, and that goes back to my earlier point. You know, I've, many of my students come to my gigs and they've had a great time. And again, it goes back to I, I, I kept a lot of variety and kept things in a groove. You know, they could tap their foot, whether we were playing funk or swing or 6-8 or whatever, 3-4. They could tap their foot, and they, and they really loved it. And so now they're like, man, I'm buying music, I'm buying jazz. So that, that really gives me a lot of satisfaction to hear that. You know. What do you think has happened to the groove in music? Or in jazz, I should say. Mm. Well, I mean, there's a lot of folks that are grooving their behinds off, sure. no doubt, no doubt. But I, I, like I say again, I guess through the evolutionary process, um, you know, musicians, everybody has a different palette that they want to use to paint their picture, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough call because as a musician, you practice every day to get better at what you do at your craft, to refine your craft. And, and you know, you get to a point where you want to express all of these things that you've been working on and your, all of your experiences. Other thing, too, our eyes are like a recorder. And every day we open our eyes, we're taking in more and more information that we hadn't had the day before. And all of that comes out in your music. So when you combine that with the, with the years of practice and stuff, so you can get to a point where this technique and everything is just flowing. And and you go in a direction where where you 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 you're not even cognizant of what's happening, and um, which is fine, but it's always a thin line because you gotta also take into account that there's people listening that they may not have had those same experiences that you've had, or the or the information that you've had, and and you gotta bring them along, you gotta relate to where they're coming from. And, uh, and and I find for the groove, uh, that's the easy way to connect is with, with rhythm. It's very easy to connect with somebody. You can do all kind of different things. Now, let me take that back. Actually, I take that back. Well, it's one aspect, rhythm, but also melody is another thing that's I think is very important. To write something uh, m melodic that somebody can remember it it meant it, it it really makes me feel great when i go to play in a club and someone will come to me and say hey man you're gonna play that tune dee da dee da dee da you know so one of these tunes i wrote maybe township diary something very simple and and, and it's funny how all the music that i've written and, and recorded that song the township diary is one of the most popular songs that people want me to play and it's very simple. Dee da dee da, do dee do dee do dee do dee do dee do do dee do do. It's very simple, but they remember that, and I think that's the key. You know, when you come and play something very intricate, the average person not going to be able to remember that or even sing it. 
but you play something very melodic simple they can remember that and that there's another basis of communication so i think the melody and the rhythm are really important you know you can do all kind of complex harmonies but if you got a groove and you got a good melody i think you're going to touch you're going to touch somebody it's interesting this is a kind of topic that comes up a lot on this show <clears throat> and i interview people who play all kinds of different music mm-hmm. in this kind of improvised music umbrella mm-hmm. and uh i guess the thing i keep coming back to again and again and it sounds like what you're saying too is that there there is no right answer to the question of what it what it should be or what it has no, to be no. there's just individual stylistic preferences and, no doubt and no doubt. what your own mission is and your what own. your own statement is going to be no doubt yeah i mean this like i say this guys that i appreciate as a musician that i listen to and um it's 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 fantastic what they're doing and but but i know for example the same individual that if i put that cd on for my 18 and 19 year old f- freshman or something they they may not get it they may not really it may not touch them and the way it touches me but then i put on something else that you know they can they feel the pulse because i find with students what i've noticed that's the first thing they're looking for when they hear some music is where the beat is <laughs> right you know because that's the that's today's generation you know from whatever from r&b to hip-hop and everything you know it's the, it's the beat and that's the first thing they're looking for where's the and you put on something that they that the beat is obscured, they they, they got that puzzled look on their face. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, what's, what's going on? You know. Yeah. And, and and again, it's a thin line. And, and I'm not to I'm not in, uh, insinuating either that as an artist you have to condescend or you have to just play a hip hop beat just to relate to somebody. Not at all. You can swing. I mean, I toured in Africa several times with my group. And it was really interesting because before the first State Department tour I did, which was in 89, went to 10 countries in East Africa, the gentleman in Paris at the embassy, the first we had a meeting before we went, and that was the first thing he came to me and said, you know, um, you know, TK, I love your music, and that's why I was sending you out and your recordings, you know, I think it would be great music uh, for, for, for Africa. He says, but, but please be cognizant, uh, try not to play too avant-garde. You know, because, uh, and, and I said, no, what you hear on the record, that's what I'm going to do. You know, I had a record out called Egyptian Oasis. And, uh, and man, it was cool. We, 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 taught, we played some funk. We played some Brazilian rhythm, some samba, some calypso, some swing, straight ahead swing. And everybody loved it because everything was rhythmic. And it, they, but, you know, they could hear where the, they could feel the pulse. And that was the key, you know. And then I had an opportunity to play with many African musicians. And, and, and I've been in some instances where it was impossible for me to even play because it was so complex what they were doing, the African musicians. Sure. The, the rhythmic thing was so complex. I mean, so many polyrhythms, and I couldn't figure out where one was. <laughs> so I was like, wow, I better lay out. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's really interesting. People think African music is primitive. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very intricate, you know. Uh, you have, I mean, I went to, to in uh, Zimbabwe to hear some 
these uh, group that were playing the the embiras, mm -hmm. and I, I play embira. I, I I have um, several. I've been playing that instrument since the 70s. I, I met a, a gentleman in the 70s named Nadi Kamar, who um, I'm not quite sure if he's still alive. Uh, if he is, he's got to be close to 100. Uh, and Nadi, uh, he, he, last I spoke to him, he was living about maybe 10 years ago. He was living out in the Midwest. But he was, um, he, his name was Spalding Givens initially in jazz. He, was one, he played with Mingus. He recorded with Mingus and piano, great piano player, but, but somewhere along the line he decided he wanted to only play African instruments, so he decided to play the Mbira, and he made one called the Mama Lukembi, which he could play almost like a piano, chords. So, describe an Mbira to people. Who may yeah, Mbira is, is, is what we call in the West the, the thumb piano, right. African thumb piano. It has different names depending on the part of Africa it comes from. Mbira is one name which you'll find in, in Zimbabwe area. Sansa. It's another name. Kalimba is another name. Lukembi. These are all names for the same instrument. And uh, Nadi was a master of this instrument. And under his tutelage, I learned how to play it. And I even learned how to make one. I made uh, I made one oh, yeah. from uh, a gourd and things like that. And you can tune them and you can actually play chords and melodies and things like that. So um, I p heard a group in Zimbabwe were playing the Mbiras and there were singers and there were some drummers. But again, for the life of me, man, that music was so complex. And plus, you know, they, they were dealing with a different harmonic system, too. They, they were dealing in quarter tones and things in between the notes that we have in the diatonic scale. So I had to lay out on that one. <laughs> I just appreciate it, you know. That was the what I call the African avant-garde. <laughs> it's like, wow. started in radio in the early 90s and I remember when um, the album introducing Talib Kibwe came out and uh, it was a, f a funny title in a lot of ways because mm -hmm. uh, I remember when it first came out um, as and, one on evidence yep yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was it was introducing you only to people who didn't know you were already there right. because <laughs> you've right. been there a long time right. by the time that right. record came out sure. I think a lot of people might not realize how how deep your history is and how long yeah. you've been on the scene can, can you yeah. just talk a little bit about uh, kind of your your forays into the profession well, i think world? yeah i think the reason that was titled like that too was because i had spent almost 10 years abroad you know i left uh you know my, my first major gig uh was in 1977 and that was with uh abdullah ibrahim mm. you know i played with jackie bard before that i did i played uh with john cherry uh just a thing at the five spot but my first really uh, employer of any length of time was Abdul Ibrahim, and, and through his uh, guidance, I, I started touring for the first time in Europe and things like that. So I wound up moving to Paris in the early 80s and spent most of the 80s living in Paris. So I guess coming back in the 90s, trying to reconnect on the New York scene, um, and then I got that deal with evidence. So he said, oh, yeah, we'll call it introducing to reintroduce you. Uh, you know, because New York is rough, man. You leave New York for a couple of months, man. You're out of sight, <laughs> no out of mind. No one knows who you are, right? No one knows you gotta, you got to get back on the back of the line, the pecking order, you know. So, uh, But, uh, yeah, I've had the, – the thing that I feel really blessed is that I've had um, uh, rich experiences of playing with a variety of musics and styles. Living in Paris was incredible because it, it, there I played with groups from Africa, groups from the islands. You have all that, you have Guadeloupe, Martinique, all of that presence in, Af in, in Paris. And I work with all musicians from there, many from West Africa. I had a chance to play with Manu Dubango. Wow. Um, oh man, the list goes on. Brazilian groups. 
uh, and is reggae. that where Abdullah Ibrahim lived? Is that why you moved to Paris? No, how did that no, he happen? he never. I don't know. I don't believe he ever lived in Paris. No, he lived in Copenhagen. Okay, and I know he lived in Germany at, at one time. Uh, uh, I, I'm not really quite sure how I wound up in Paris. I had a URL pass. I was I was initially in Switzerland, but I was kind of floating, and and I went to Paris just to see what was going on. And I ran into a friend of mine that I knew from New York. And and another guy I met, and he actually had a gig he couldn't make. He said, man, you want to make this gig for me? And I said, okay, why not? And on that gig, I met people, and they said, yeah, I like how you play. Can you make this gig next week? And it just was a spiral effect. And I 10 years I, later. I might as well just get my bags and, and move on in, you know. So that was a really eye-opener. I, I remember even doing a film over there. I worked with a group uh, called Halam, and we did a movie with the, one of the big French uh, movie stars, uh, Michel LeBlanc and Gerard Levin. I think Gerard Levin in the 80s, he'd probably be like the equivalent of uh, Tom Cruise, you know. And in the movie, he's called Marshal Lombre, uh Gerard Levin plays a, 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 a down-and-out musician. And Michel Blanc as well, he, play, he plays guitar, but Gerard Levin in the movie, he plays saxophone. And he plays, a, and in the, in the pinnacle of the movie, he, he meets this African group in Paris and does a jam with them, and he plays so great that he gets invited and goes to New York. Well, that solo he plays is my, <laughs> my solo. I had to actually give him lessons and all of that stuff. Wow. So, yeah, they hired me, I had to go to his house. And it was a trip, man, because going to his place in Paris, you know, there was babes laying outside all the time trying to get a glimpse of him and or they would ask oh, could you give him this note <laughs> you know i was like wait this is wild you know <laughs> oh gerard gerard but he's screaming up to his window you know but um yeah he's he's pretty cool cat you know we did some and, and in the movie he's playing my saxophone i had uh my selma mark six wow. I had, uh, yeah he's playing my horn and that yeah but it was a two and two and a half minute solo it was pretty big and it's really nice because jazz magazine uh, which would be like the equivalent of Downbeat over in France. They did a nice article on it, and they mentioned me. And they said, you know, it's a shame they didn't have that in the credits that the solo was done by me, you know. Um, yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Wow. You know, so I did a lot of different things like that. Uh, I did clinics. Uh, I taught in French. That was the other thing, too. You know, I had to, I really submerged myself in the language because uh, I wanted to travel a lot in Africa. That was, that was really the main reason for me moving to Paris. It wasn't really the be it, you know play jazz that was a, that was part of it but the main reason was to learn another language because i was traveling in the late 70s and i felt you know learning another language you can open up some more doors you know sure. i went to west africa and many countries they speak french so so that was another reason why i decided to to stay there for that length of time and how did the connection with randy westing come about randy came through abdullah ibrahim because he came to hear us play uh, at the, we were playing on a Coleman had a loft, you know. I, I came up in that rich loft era, you know. We had, you had in the late seventies. On Coleman had a place called the Artist House. Jolie Wilson, the vocalist, had a place called the Ladies Fort. Sam Rivers had a place called mm -hmm. Studio Rivby. I had a loft myself on the Bowery. Uh, I didn't have concerts, but I had you know parties, rehearsals, jam sessions, things like that. But uh, that was a rich history, and I remember playing at the. Uh, at uh, Arne Coleman's place and Randy came with his father to hear us and I had a chance to meet his dad and, and then uh, I went there was something going on uh, for uh, uh, something at Brooklyn College or, uh, for um, against apartheid and I think Randy was there and I was backstage, and we spoke, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I met, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, I said, hey, man, can I play? He said, yeah, come on. And, and he played High Fly. And, I, and it was the first time I played with him was High Fly, and I played it on piccolo. <laughs> and, and believe it or not, I have a, I have a, a copy of this. It was recorded. Somebody no kidding. Me. Yeah, yeah. I got a copy of that, man. High fly, and I played on piccolo. <laughs> so that, so after that, he, he, he played in New York at a club. I went down and sat in, and he invited me to come for the rest of the week. And, and then uh, he, he himself at that time was, he still had his place in Brooklyn, but he was living mostly in France, in Annecy. So I moved to Paris in eight, end of 81, and I dropped him a note saying, hey, I'm living in Paris now. So, so next time I got a call, I said, hey, man, let's come, come on and make this gig. And it was in July of 82. It, we were going to do some festivals. And the first one was San Sebastian. And we actually opened for Winton. 
And if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I think that was Winton's first tour as a leader because he had just signed with Columbia. Because I, I, I just heard Winton maybe a couple of months before uh, the summer of 82, but he was with Art Blakey. Okay. Yeah, I think I heard him the end of 81, and he was with Art Blakey still, him and Bradford. So so now in uh, in the summer, he's touring now with this group, and with, with, with Jeff, with, with Tane, and I think Robert Hurst, Bradford, and Kenny, Kenny Kirkland. Kirkland. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and we opened for them at this big uh, bull arena in San Sebastian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I never forget that gig, man. And, and we uh, we were only in trio. It was just me, Randy, and a, a musician from Morocco named Mohammed Ben Fattah. He was one of the Ganawa. That's the first time I played with one of the Ganawa musicians because Randy spent a lot of time in Morocco and playing. And see, the Ganawa people of Morocco, they have a very similar history with the African-American because they also were enslaved. But they were, but they came. Uh, many of them were brought to Morocco as, as slaves, but as entertainers for the king, for the court, because they were musicians. Okay. And they have a long, rich history of playing music, and of healing with music, of doing ceremonies, lilas, uh, which are ceremonies where people go into trances, and they cut themselves, and there's no blood, and and they get into a high state of of. Uh, Transcendental meditation where they don't feel any pain. Oh, they're very phenomenal musicians and healers. So that was my first introduction to them. Uh, so when I was living in Paris, that was the key for Randy and I to connect. So we wound up working a lot in Europe at that time. And then uh, we both kind of correlated where when I moved back to the States, he actually moved back to the States. So just kind of stayed in contact to the point, you know, Randy's more than a musician. Uh, I mean, he's like my father, spiritually. We're like family. He talks about that all the time. Benny, him, Neil, Alex, we're family. It's it's deeper than just playing music on the bandstand. We're, we're, we're really like a family. And um, and his music and the whole vibe, is, it's, it's, it's just incredible because it's not about one, two, three, four hit. <laughs> you know, it's it's organic. And 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 I tell people this; they don't believe me. You know, you know, all these years I've been playing with Randy almost thirty years, and I never know what he's gonna play. I I try to get him to play certain tunes that I like. I say, Randy, let's do so and so. He look at me and smile, <laughs> and he point to the ceiling, and he's and that means, well, look, man, it's what what the big man upstairs wants me to play, and he never knows what he's gonna play until he goes onto the bandstand, and then the inspiration will hit him, and then he'll go into a song, you know. So it's been a beautiful uh, uh, connection with, with, with Randy. Yeah, very, very beautiful. Going back to Latin Bird and, and mm-hmm. having heard uh, these stories that you've been telling, it's interesting because in a lot of ways this this record seems like it contains, as I guess it should, so much of that history that you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems like this record reaches back to a lot of the places that you've been yeah. in your life. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. And and, um, and the, the interesting thing that uh, I've seen written about uh, review-wise, and, 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 and I feel 
that it's it's a good thing for me um, that a lot of people feel that you know I put my own interpretation and that's the key you know I saw one review which was nice and the guy was saying you know uh, TK didn't try to play like Charlie Parker I mean who can play like Charlie Parker I mean this people that come very close you know, you get Charles McPherson, I mean, he's a monster. You know, he's one of my idols. You know, there's a lot of folks that really can play in that vernacular. I mean, um, but my decision was not to try to play like Bird or even play in that style, with, but, but, but to, to paint a picture of Bird's influence in my life with my, of what I feel. And I think that's important, you know. It's just like when I hear, um, you know, when I hear Randy play Monk, he plays Monk in a way that nobody else plays Monk because he knew Monk and he was around Monk and the way he paints the picture of Monk it, it's it's like a master painter painting a, an impression from the impressionistic era is the best way I can put it and I think that's that's what I prefer to do to come from that uh, aspect of impressionism as opposed to realism as opposed to just playing exactly excuse me exactly like this person like you know and 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 you know just swing and play exactly the way that they would have played uh, that particular tune so i think it's important to put your own uh slant on whatever it is that you do and finally let me ask you is there uh something you've you've read or seen or listened to not directly connected to your work that's uh that you'd like to share with people something that's grabbed you recently that, that i've Anything could be a film, a book, uh, another record you listened to recently that that, uh, that I enjoy, or yeah, that just something that's grabby you'd like to tell people about. Oh, so much stuff. A book, book wise, um, I'm reading. Uh, let me see, like three books at once. <laughs> I'm exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 Monks uh, by Rob Robin Kelly's yeah. book on Monk, uh, Randy's autobiography, and Jimmy Heath, uh, Walk with Giants. Um, uh, m- musically, uh, I really love uh, uh, Esperanza's CD, the Chamber Music Society. I really love what she's doing on there, uh, and and I like Ambrose. I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know, he's got that new recording yeah. out. He's killing, you know. Um, there's just so much stuff happening. Uh, uh, so many folks, uh, but one of my favorite is coming to New York very soon and I will be in the front row and that's Milton Nascimento. Oh yeah. And see I got turned on to him in Senegal through a Cuban writer. It's a funny <laughs> Yeah, Carlos Moore who actually Carlos Moore is a good friend of mine. He actually wrote uh, the biography on Fela. Oh okay. In which I think they there might be some type of uh lawsuit or something going on. I know there was something with the Broadway show and maybe some infringement copyright on the book i don't know the whole story but carlos uh i met him in uh when i first went to africa in 1978 in senegal he lived in, he was living in dakar and uh he came to the concert i did with abdullah and he invited me to his home we had food and i never forget he put on this music and it was so beautiful and he when he put this music on he told everybody he shut up you gotta stop talking no talking on this is not background music Everybody be quiet. When it's over, you can talk. Wow. <laughs> That's what he told My me. My kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and he put on the record that had uh, Los Povos, The People. And it was the first song I heard of Milton. And I never forget that song because he ends on this flat five and it was just so beautiful. I said, man. This, and and I, I've been a big fan of Milton's ever since. And I don't, I don't speak Portuguese, but I feel the spirit of his I feel his spiritual energy through his music, and I know it's profound. Some of the recordings that I have of his, uh, which have translations, is, is, is incredible. When you re- translate what the lyrics are, you just feel, wow. But tra- Traversier, The Bridges, which, yeah. you know, um, Sarah Vaughan recorded that. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite recordings of Sarah. I love Brazil and Brazilian Romance, both of them are classics. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of Brazilian music, so you know that that always influences me tremendously. And Milton's coming to New York soon. I didn't realize coming, that. Yeah, he's going to be at uh, Rose Hall, Jazz oh, wow. Lincoln Center, June 24th. I guess I better get myself some tickets. I'll be there, no doubt. Man. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll cancel a gig to, to go that. see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I'll cancel a gig to see Milton, man. Yeah, that's a. But uh, yeah, I just uh, I'm very very. Um, Excited. I mean, the music is in such great hands. The younger generation today, man, they're phenomenal, man, playing uh, with such great authority. And uh, it's nice 
and to see these young artists develop and as they get older it's going to be incredible because like I say the more um, one of the things that, that you can't force is life and it's part of your music so you can be 25 and play phenomenal stuff but as you get older that phenomenal stuff will be more phenomenal because of your life experience because that goes into your music so every year this is like when i hear randy randy's 85 man he plays one note on the piano he can play one single note and i know it's him blindfold i guarantee you you can give me a blindfold test give me one chord i know it's him just from his sound the sound the spirit of the of his essence of his spirit comes out through that one note and you can feel it and that's that's what that's the beauty about playing music i think as you get older your music becomes more and more refined and uh, you become more and more um, in tune with the creator through your music and all your life experiences come out through your music. So the one note that you played when you were 18 has a lot more weight when you play it when you're 50 and it'll have a, even more weight when you're 70. That same note, it's different. It's hard to put it into words but the timbre of it the weight of it the the uh the tonal coloring of that note it 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 just gets enhanced over time so and so it's it's a beautiful thing to be a musician uh, i feel truly blessed by god to have been allowed to play music and have uh the the, the work ethic because i had to work hard and i still work hard to play i i don't consider myself uh, innately gifted there's some people who are, you know, at perfect pitch and playing piano concertos when they were 11 or 12, <laughs> you know. Um, but my gift, I think that, that God gave me was a strong work ethic to, to, and, and discipline. That's the key, you know, to really uh, block everything out and say, I'm going to do this and I want to work on it. I, I remember getting hit over the head with my flute by a girlfriend in college. Because she wanted me to stop practicing and spend time with her and take her to the movies. I said, well, I got to practice. I had, no, I'm tired of that flute. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I tell students that story. I said, so that's what you got to do. You got to play until somebody grabs your instrument, hits you over the head. Because <laughs> you you they, they're tired of hearing you practice. You know, that's the dedication. <laughs> play until your lip bleeds. I mean, I, 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 and I'm not being facetious. I tell, I, I've done that. I played until my lip started bleeding inside, you know, that, you know, you block all that stuff out. I mean, because if you want to get to that next plateau, that's the kind of dedication it takes. And even at school, my students, they see what I do every second that I do not teach every second free time. I'm in my office. You hear me practicing. Every second. If I have a class at 11 o'clock, I arrive at school at 830, 9 o'clock to practice. So that's the key, man. That's the key. I keep that horn in my mouth, <laughs> you know, and, and they see that and, and they say, wow, if, if, if a professor's practicing like that, I better, you know, I might get on it. I say, that's the key. That's the key because that's how you're going to get better. That's how you're going to get better. And and what, what it does, it's like Charlie Parker had that fam very famous saying, you learn everything you can about music. Learn everything you can about your instrument, and then you forget it all and just play. And what happens, um, you know, as soon as always ask me, well, you know, how come I can't play like you? How come I can't play fast? How come I can't play? You know, I, ha I hear something, but I, I said, because you have to go through that training, uh, the, the repetitive training, so that um, those things um, you don't have to think about anymore. The connection between what you feel emotionally and the execution of it, it, it comes right out. And that's what happens when you hear all the great masters, McCoy and all these cats, you know, Roy Haynes and all the, you know, Hank Jones, the great masters, Moody. I had a chance to study with Moody. He's a masters. They could, you know, I remember taking a lesson with Moody on flute and he said to me, he said, okay, young man, play something. And I played, I played this little figure, whatever, who knows. And he, he listened to what I played and he played exactly what I played back at me through the keys. <laughs> Yeah, like I might have said, you know, but on diddle doon diddle doon diddle doon not. He said, but on diddle doon diddle doon diddle not, but on diddle doon diddle doon diddle not. He went through the whole key. And I was just like, I said, well, man, I said, so I said to him, I said, well, 
can you just play anything? He said, no, man. He said, if you get to the point where you can just play anything, it's, it's, it's over. There's always something you can't play. And that's, that was very profound, what he said. He says, always something. Just like Ellington had a saying. Ellington said, you know, there is no perfect musician. He said, you take the greatest concert classical violinist in the world. There is some music that that person cannot play. Take the greatest jazz musician. There's some music that that person won't be able to play. Like the example I gave you when I went to Zimbabwe. I couldn't play that music. It was too difficult. Right. But he says, but a wise musician is one who plays what they can master. And that's, that's, I found that to be very profound. I see sometimes musicians tackle some music that they shouldn't really play because it's maybe too difficult, maybe not in their style. And he said, but a wise musician is one who plays what they can master. So you figure out your niche and what works for you and go for it. <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's a, you know, and, and it's not to say don't challenge yourself because you should. You know, I've written stuff and recorded stuff that was very challenging for me. I had to woodshed on it. And, 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 and there, was some, there was something good to say about that because at one point I was getting ready to pull the plug on it and say, man, I'm not going to do this to him. It's just too hard, man. And I'm, you know, I'm getting blocked with finding ideas. And my other half said, come on, chump, don't do that to yourself. Rise up to the occasion. Work at it. Sure. You can get it. And that's okay. Let me tackle it. And it became a challenge. And, then you, and I learned from it. So that was always a good thing. My guest is TK Blue. He's got a new record called Latin Bird on Motema Music. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming my, on the show. My pleasure, Jason. God bless you. And uh, I look forward to hearing some more of your, your work as well. Thanks very much. from TK Blue and his new album, Latin Bird. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Please do become a member. That is the one and only thing that will keep this show going. That is your membership. So head over to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member today. It really is cheap, and uh, it's, it's so essential keep the show going. I, I kid you not. And once you've done all of that and you've become a member and you've squared yourself uh, karmically speaking with the jazz gods, then just shut off all this electronic stuff and get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.